So you know what it is from personal experience, maybe your own experience, or you trying to encourage someone else in their personal life where there's unseen pain and burden. Unless you know the person, you might not be able to realize that they're enduring such pain and burden, but beneath the surface there's a, there's a burden and a pain that's so intense But also with that unseen pain, there's an unseen perseverance that is amazing. For what they're having to endure, for what is burdening down their hearts, there's an equal, even overcoming, unseen perseverance, a grace. That was Paul's story, for example. Uh, This is the great Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is the one that Jesus made a personal post-resurrection appearance to, post-ascension appearance to, and uh, converted him on the road to Damascus. The great Apostle Paul, so given to preaching the kingdom and preaching uh, the gospel to the nations and the Gentiles in particular, the Paul that would confront Peter, this, this great Paul, you know he had an unseen pain accompanied by an unseen perseverance. He writes about it, otherwise we wouldn't know about this. We would not know about this had he not written and shown his heart to the believers at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. After he just went through talking in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12 about he has seen the heavenly dimension, the heavenlies, and he's heard things in that vision, and he wasn't allowed to, uh, to, to, um, to report to everything. It was not, um, a man's not permitted to speak, and and things like that. So he had had heavenly visions. In verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I implored, I begged the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He, the Lord, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I I will rather boast about my weaknesses then, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, ah, that's, that's when I'm strong. Those are amazing verses of testimony. Would we have known the depth of his hurt? Something that the great Apostle Paul prayed three times that God would remove it from him. It must have been intense. But there's an unseen pain with him accompanied with an unseen, excuse me, an unseen immense grace and perseverance to him. Another example of someone who is under something so heavy yet they continue to persevere because of some unseen strength at work in their life. Another example would be Elizabeth Prentice. Elizabeth Prentice was the wife of a Presbyterian minister. and Tom White writes about her in his book, Living Testimonies. It's actually an article, Living Testimonies. Elizabeth, as I said, was the wife of a Presbyterian pastor, and she spent most of her adult life as an invalid. 
seldom knowing a day without constant pain throughout her entire body. Yet she was described by her friends as a bright-eyed, cheery woman with a, with a keen sense of humor. Well, Elizabeth was always strong in faith and encouraging to others until tragedy struck the Prentice family beyond anything that she could bear. It was the loss of two of their children that brought such great sorrow to Elizabeth's life. For weeks, no one could comfort her. And in her diary, she wrote, quote, empty hands, a worn out, exhausted body, and unutterable longings to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences, end quote. It was during this period of grief that Elizabeth cried out to God, asking Him to minister to her broken spirit. And it was at this time that Elizabeth's story became a living testimony. For over 100 years, the body of Christ has been encouraged as they sing the words penned by Elizabeth during this deepest sorrow. You might remember these lyrics from her unseen pain. More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest. Now Thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. And then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. You know that song written from her unseen pain. But out of her unseen pain, there emerged a grace that produced an unseen unseen perseverance. Hmm. Sometimes when you have that kind of pain that you're living with, or that, and sometimes it's not physical pain, it's just everything's fine and you're safe and everything, but your heart is really burdened for something, or in particular, someone. And you don't see any end, but you to the problem and to the burden, but you continue to hang in there. But you have to live from episode to episode, from conversation to conversation, from day to day, and there's, there's just an unseen perseverance about you. And of course, I'm bringing this to bear on our current studies, our current study called Two Kingdoms in One House. We're talking about living with a disobedient or an unsaved spouse. And if this is you or someone that you know and love who is needing this study, then you understand what it means to have unseen pain. And I want to tell you tonight that there is a grace available to you for an unseen perseverance that people will say it's not coming from you, it's coming from God. And by the way, let me just be clear. When we say living with a disobedient or unsaved spouse, we're not just talking about women who go through this. Men go through this too. With a wife who could be uh, disobedient or ends up, of course, being unsaved. 
And just because this is true of a marriage doesn't mean that it's a dangerous marriage. There are plenty of, of what we would call humanly um, safe and very um, joyful marriages between a saved and an unsaved spouse. And even in some cases where there's a disobedient spouse, it doesn't mean it's a dangerous place. It's just they're making decisions that are saddening the heart of, their, of the obedient spouse. This is a series for men and women who feel and sense this unseen pain. And this is our fourth message into this series, and I'm calling it The Put On. The Put On. You say, what do you mean by that? And just by way of reminder, what we looked at last time together, um, we went to Ephesians chapter 4, and we saw this built out, and this is in your notes again by way of reminder. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be doing some some more theology together this evening, and then we'll be moving to several different texts. Whenever I use PowerPoint, I get more in a teaching mode anyway. Ephesians 4, we looked carefully at verses 22 to 24 in our last study. It says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And we say, well, what is this? This is the Bible's model of progressive sanctification. Uh, The three steps that we see here, we've got a dangling E there, I see, um, on the slide. Um, the, the, The pattern we see here in Ephesians 4, we see all through Scripture. We saw it in the Old Testament. I showed it to you in the Old Testament. And I showed it to you in the New Testament in several different places from several different authors in the New Testament. It's always the same process of change. It starts, it it involves these three components of repentance, renewing, and replacing. We saw in verse 22 of Ephesians 4, the put off, or we call it the repent. And this is where you and I accept uh, full responsibility for sinful behavior in our lives, uh, something that that resembles more a life lived without Christ and His resources, our pre-saved life, it resembles more of that, and we have to repent for it, repent over it, and confess it. And then we saw in verse 23, it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We call number, the second part, the second component, renew. Or if you want to stay with the put off thing, renew is put in. In other words, this is where we approach Scripture. We have our our struggle we're going through, we have our test we're going through, and we must get to Scripture because we want our thoughts to be biblical. We want our bad thoughts, our unbiblical thoughts to be exposed so we can turn from them and we want to fill the vacuum with God's truth. That's renew. And the third component is from verse 24 of Ephesians where it says, and put on the new man. We have put off, we have put in, and we have put on is the third one, or you can call it replace. Repent, renew, and replace. This is where um, I find from a renewed mind from Scripture what must replace what I put off. I don't just put away sin and put off sin. I must fill that vacuum with uh, traits and virtues of Jesus Christ Himself. Put on the new man. And we laid that out uh, last week, and it kind of gives us a game plan for those believers who find themselves in this scenario of living with an unbelieving or a disobedient spouse. I mean, truth be told, whether it's a 
um, an explosive home or whether it's a very peaceful home, um, there's usually a lack of a plan of what am I going to do in this? How am I going to live in this setting? And I believe that this model that we see in both Testaments gives you a very concrete plan. I, I will even reword that and say it gives you the only clear plan from Scripture. How do you grow? How do you thrive even in a very difficult situation? One that weighs you down at least at the very heart level because you're burdened for your spouse. And so we, we laid this out to you last, last time. And then we said you, you always want to enter at the middle one. Renew. You always want to make a beeline. When you're overwhelmed with your burden, when you're overwhel- overwhelmed with concerns that you have for your spouse, or even if, if you need wisdom to know what to do because the situation's turning dangerous. It doesn't always turn dangerous, but it might be turning dangerous. And you're wondering, what's my plan? You've got to get to the Word of God so that you can think God's thoughts from His Word. And so what we did is that's where we entered with our series that we're currently in right now. Um, The first thing we did is we went to Scripture. We entered at the Renew, and we saw um, that this is really a common um, issue that believers have to deal with. And we saw in Scripture, we saw especially in Corinth and in in 1 Peter, that it's not uncommon for a Christian to have an unsaved spouse. This isn't unique to you. Or a disobedient spouse. It's not unique to your household. And this kind of gives you a terra firma that, that <clears throat> you're not facing something that others haven't faced or that others um, are not facing right now. You're not alone in your struggle. We saw that this can happen because if you, if you have a, an unsaved spouse or a disobedient, it could be a spouse that when you came to Christ, they didn't come to Christ. Or it could be that you were both in Christ and they have... Um, continued to behave as if they're not, but it's a very common situation. And then we saw that there are other examples in Scripture of someone that had a difficult situation, at least in different chapters of their marriage and in their home. Job was an example we looked at where his wife said, curse God and die, when he was at a low point. We saw Isaac, a man, was in this situation when Rebekah manipulated him. Solomon got himself in a mess, right? 2 Kings 11. But we spent most of our time, as far as a case study, visiting Abigail, who was married to Nabal. And we saw that episode in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And you know what? Just hearing that Scripture addresses this issue, and then listening and watching a case study, it was suddenly settling somewhat to us. It's like, I'm not alone in this. And, and I'm even seeing someone that I feel like I know now, this Abigail. How did she survive and even protect her unbelieving husband, Nabal? Saved his life, actually. And so we have hope. Coming in, starting with Scripture, gives us hope. But we don't stay there. Hope is something that must be acted on, not just marveled at. And we, we argued last time in our last study that once we enter with Scripture and we insist that Scripture, not a popular blogger, um, Scripture, not a, a popular author, it's Scripture that programs us how to view the scenario, how to read the terrain we're on, and then it tells us, it's going to be honest enough and tell us, is there anything I must repent of in this scene? I mean, you're not responsible for the unbelief of your spouse. You're, 
that they're remaining in unbelief. Or you're not responsible for the sin of your spouse, your saved spouse, because those are their choices. But is there anything living in a situation like that where you have established patterns that need to be repented of? You see, now that we're on the inside of this process and we're in the Word, we look to the left on this chart and we ask the Lord, what must I put off? What have I got comfortable doing in my own mind to survive or to to thrive in this situation? Things that you don't permit me to, Lord. And we need to repent of that. We, We identified two main categories of things that we need to repent of in situations like this often. We saw in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6 through 6, that, that we have to repent of any kind of manipulation, any kind of manipulation of our unsaved or disobedient spouse. We don't, we don't manipulate them, and the key word is withhold something from them. We don't withhold intimacy. We don't withhold communication. We don't withhold emotional stability in the home. We don't withhold our presence from them. We don't isolate from them. And we don't withhold um, the, uh, the, this unity that, uh, that, sh- that should be characteristic, at least as far as you're concerned, in that marriage, in that communication. Romans 12.18 says, As much as it lies with you, be at peace with all men. So we need to repent of any type of manipulation. We need to put off any type of manipulation, we saw. And then we went to 1 Peter chapter 3 in that study, and we looked at verses 1-6. through 6. In God's providence, we looked at that same passage that Sunday morning and then talked about it again Sunday night in this series. And we saw a second thing that we need to repent of, and that's nagging. Nagging. And the key word here is relentless. We must repent of relentlessly preaching against sin, relentlessly inviting them to church, and relentlessly expressing our opinion, even when they're not asking for it, because they know all three of those. And after a while, in the best case scenario, your invitations and your little sermons become ambient noise. Worst case scenario, it broadens the margin between you. These are things that you need to put off if you find yourself in that situation. But renewing our mind not only tells us, listen, what to put off, it tells us what to put on. Now here's where you have to remember to look left first. As you're going to cross the street, you look left and you look right. As you get God's thoughts and His wisdom from His Word in your mind and you're, you're saying to your Lord, I'm open, what do you need to teach me from your Word? And He shows you that you need to repent of some manipulation or nagging you've been doing. You need to stop everything and repent. And not just to God. My recommendation on the basis of Scripture is for you to go to your spouse and ask their forgiveness too. You say, well, they're unsaved. They're disobedient. Mm -hmm. And they just maybe need to see your humility because um, they need to see that you're aware that you've been doing what God says not to do in a situation like that. There needs to be repentance. You say, what do we do do after that? After that, and and concurrent with it, we need to also put on. We need to replace In other other words, there may be some things that we haven't been doing in our life, in that setting, in that home, that needs to be started by God's grace. There's a put off, and tonight I want to talk to you about the put on. And here's where I want to go uh, right, right to the list that's in your notes, okay? 
What do you put on? And let me just say, this list, just like the, the put-off list, please hear this, the put-off list is not exhaustive. I gave you two main categories. But you may be reading Scripture and the Holy Spirit of God says, yeah, this one too and this one too. I'm just getting you started with the put-off. And it's the same with the put-on. I want to get you started, but there's more that you could put on than what I'm going to recommend to you, though I am going to recommend a lot to you tonight. See, what do you need to put on? First of all, you need to choose to make God your refuge. Now, you may say, Jim, you have an amazing grasp of the obvious. Of course, that must be the first thing you do. We expect you to say something God, God-ish. And we've got to run to God. And we expect that. But the problem is, we look at that, and too often, that is merely a cliché. But understand, when I say this to you, it's a warning that you're not running to something or someone else. Again, I've, I've mentioned this to you before. Uh, Jim Berg has told us for years. He says, who is your Messiah? And, and everyone, you know, the right answer is, well, that's Jesus. And he says, let me just tell you this. You show me to what or who you run when you are being crushed when you are needing to be delivered. And I'll show you whether it's capital M Messiah or little m Messiah. Some people will run to fads. Some will run to social media. Some will run to the abuse of substance. Some will run to extramarital um, affairs. And it could be a physical, including the physical, or it could just be an emotional affair, connecting with someone other than the husband or the wife on a level that is, is an intimate level. And you say, well, that's my safe place. That's how I deal with it. Well, if that has been going on, there needs to be putting off a repentance of that. And you need to come back to, so how do I go to God as my refuge? I want to give you a couple verses for each of these, and I would love for you to turn to them with me. Go with me to Psalm 9, verses 9 through 10. In the biblical counseling movement, there's a lot of talk right now, and rightfully so on domestic abuse and any kind of abuse, physical, measurable abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and uh, and things along these lines. But you don't always find in our English Bibles the words that our culture is using on this topic of abuse. And biblical counselors are saying there are biblical words we need to be using. And one of the big words that you'll find in your Scriptures is the word oppression or oppress. And this is one of the passages that we are wearing down now in this discussion on domestic abuse. It's Psalm 9, and we're going to see this word as an example in this, pa- in this passage. Verses 9 and 10. Run to the God as my refuge. What do you mean? The Lord also, verse 9, the Lord also will be, listen, a stronghold for the oppressed. A refuge. Okay? A stronghold. And he continues, it's a, he's a stronghold in the times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And look at that first line there in verse 10. Those who know your name will, not might, they will put their trust in you. That's a pretty confronting statement. Because what is that saying if you and I 
if we're in a situation like this in our home, what is it saying if we don't go to God as our refuge? We don't put our trust in Him. What is this verse telling us? Then we don't know His name. I mean, basically, this is, this is David saying, just trust me on this. If you have a clear vision of God as He has revealed Himself, not just in general revelation, but don't forget that one. Look at the sky at night. But as He reveals Himself and the specifics of who He is and what he, He's done and what He does for those who he, whom He loves, you won't be able to find another choice but to put your trust in Him during oppression. To know His name is indeed to commit to Him in the hard times, during the unseen pain. Another verse to jot down is Psalm 46. Let me just read it to you. Verse 1, 1 and following. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You say, like in the worst scenarios, well, listen to the rest of the verse. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake, its swelling pride, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. Verse 10, therefore, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Often a husband married to an unbelieving wife or a disobedient wife or a wife finding herself in that situation, they've been trying to, to figure it out by themselves. They've been trying to survive every day from episode to episode, from contact to contact, from day to day in that home thinking, I'm on my own here. I just got to figure something out that can make this work. And the whole time, God's been with you. He's not just been there as a reporter taking notes. He's not been in there merely to crush you if you make a wrong turn. He's been there to be your refuge. Run to Him. Because if you don't run to Him, you'll run to something or someone else. You will seek out a refuge. It's either going to be capital R or little r. I, got a, I received a text message uh, actually this morning. It was during the sermon, but it was from Texas, so a different time zone from a, a Christian. And he's one of my buddies that's a retired Navy SEAL. And he's just checking in with me. We're going to have a phone call, get caught up. And uh, I called him by his team name. I'm not going to say that as we're recording here. But um, I used to tease him when we both lived in Virginia Beach. I would say, hey, man, I said, if there's ever a ground attack by the, our nation's enemies in Virginia Beach and Norfolk. I'm coming to your house, right? We're clear on that? I'm going to come live with you and just let you take care of the bad guys from the backyard, okay? I'm running to you because I know who you are, I know what you've done, and I know you know what to do. You know, it would be good for us to use those same kind of affirming phrases and run to God if we are in a situation of living with an unsaved or disobedient spouse. This is what will give you your, 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 your steady footing 
Choose to make God your refuge. It's no longer a cliche. It's a matter of survival. Next, what do we put on? You need to choose to make Christ your example. Choose to make Christ your example. And again, in stating this in the positive, the negative would be, don't make anyone else your ultimate example. Now, you say there's that common demand thing where other believers are going through this or have gone through it. They're going to be an encouragement to you. And Scripture even tells them to minister to you by what they've been through. But primarily and first, look to the one that helped them get through it, and it's the Lord. And then their testimonies will fill that in and demonstrate it for you. You say, what do we look at for this one? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. I told you we weren't going into 1 Peter today, but I'm, I guess I am. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. I've preached through these verses in our morning series, but allow me to read them to you one more time. Our Lord is talking about how to submit to unsaved authorities in our lives. God rejecting authorities, be it government or in our culture, in a work setting. And then He's going to step into the house, into the homes, and into the marriages. And before He does, before He makes that big leap, He says there's one example you need to know that won't just help you with the government and won't just help you with the work culture, but it'll, it'll completely outfit you for getting into the home when you have to exercise this. And it's the example of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and following. Servants, be submissive. This is the one talking. You see, submit in verse 13 and submit in verse 18. 13 to the government, 18 uh, to the work culture. But drop down to verse 21. Let me just start reading here. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the Father. And he, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. He says, look to Jesus. And then from there he goes into chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, yes, even in the home. Even in the home. Choose to make Christ your example. I mean, we, we can call out to Christ in prayer at any moment. And it's not like he's in a distant galaxy and we have to get real loud or hope the mail arrives in a timely manner so he can answer. He's, he's in us. He dwells in us according to the upper room. As we said in our last study, He's right here. He says in John chapter 14, if, if you keep My commandments, I will disclose Myself to you. He's that near. He's with you in that home. And He says to you in His Word, as He's right there, I know the unseen pain you're feeling in this home. It could be a place that it's, you're, you're on your nerve's edge just because of the instability of the marriage now, because of the disbelief or the disobedience. Or it could be you actually have a good home. 
and a loving spouse who's just not saved, but your heart is all the more burdened for them because you want them to know Jesus. Jesus says, I know what you're going through. And I went through it at a degree beyond what you'll ever see. And let me just tell you, here's how to do it. You know what Jesus is doing here if we use football as an illustration, which you're all excited to do. Jesus is teaching us how to play offense and defense as he holds the other team's playbook. Here's what they did to me. Here's what they're going to do to you. And here's what I did. Here's what I will, I will grace you to do. It's almost not fair. The advantage we have, right? In other words, Jesus is saying this in those verses. I did so you can. You can survive and not just survive, but you can thrive. Choose to make Christ your example. Whenever you are facing questions or concerns, whenever your burden is so, your, your, your passion for them to, to obey Christ or, or to come to Christ is just so, is so intense, see His heart. His was too. Even from the cross, He demonstrates. In the pain of His final moments, He demonstrates a heart ready to forgive. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Let him be your example. And you come stare at him often, as much as you have to, in the pages of Scripture. So this is what you put on. For starters, choose to make God your refuge. Choose to make Christ your example. And third, choose to see trials as opportunities. Choose to see trials as opportunities. See, what do you mean by that? Well, we've been in this verse a lot. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is your verse here. There has no test overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And the word test there is I've, 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 I've gone through with you many times. I know Pastor Graham before me went over this with you many times. That word test means, uh, that word trials or temptation means a, it's a test. It's, it's, it's something that happens on the out, outside of me to, to see what comes from, out, from within me in response. And you say, what? I'm supposed to see bad things like having an unbelieving or, dis, or dis, uh, disobeying spouse as an opportunity, right? You might be finding yourself asking that question. Trials equal opportunities. And it's here. I want to remind you of a series that is available on Sermon Audio that I did about a, two years ago called Christ-like Responsibilities. And I gave you key questions to ask whenever you are in a test. And I believe that asking these questions will indeed show you that the test that you're living in in a marriage where there's disobedience or disbelief is an opportunity for you at every level. See, what do you mean? I'm just going to remind you of what we went through in that series and you can listen to it at a later time. Um, always surrender your anxieties. What worries do you have to surrender? We looked at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-7 through 7 for this one. Remember? We also looked at Philippians chapter 4, verses 5-7. through 7. Since I'm in 1 Peter, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Verse 6 is about pride and humility, right? 
And then we get to verse 7 and we think sometimes that Peter's changing topics. It says, casting all your anxiety or casting all his worries on him because he cares for you. You're like, okay, in verse 6 he's doing the pride and humility thing. And in verse 7 he's changing the topic now to um, worry and anxiety. Right? Wrong. He's still on point. It's actually a theme he started back at verse 1. And he's riding this thing all the way down to verse 7. This whole section is about humility. And we saw when we studied this one that, that in God's eyes, He sees us being unwilling to give our anxieties to Him as an act of pride. You see, what does God do when He sees pride? He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's the end of verse 5. That's what He does. If you and I don't surrender the specific things we're worried about, even in a, in a relationship like what we're talking about in this series, God sees that as exposing pride. Surrender your anxieties. Write them out and take them to the Lord one at a time. Philippians 4, verses 5-7 through seven says that we give God our worries when we pray. It says, worry about nothing, pray about everything. Remember that text? So surrender your anxieties. I'm going through these very abbreviated in my pace. Appreciate elements. You see, what do you mean? There are, there are parts, different elements of the test that you're in being married to an unbeliever or a disobedient professing Christian. There are elements of that that will give you the opportunity to grow to be more like Jesus more so than if you weren't in a marriage like that. See, your verse for this, as we saw when we went through it in more detail, was Romans 8, 28, and 29. God causes all things to work together for your good. And your good is to be, verse 29, conformed to the image of Christ. That's why Paul can say, give thanks at all times for all things. He says that in Ephesians 5.20. And, and he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, be thankful at all times for all things, for this is God's will for you. And instead of that turning us into, into cold, calculated zombies that just say, it's in my life, I just have to, in a cold way, be thankful. Thank you, Lord. No, it takes you much deeper than that when you see in Romans 8, 28 and 29 that God will even use your unsaved or disobedient spouse to make you more like Jesus. So it's up to you on this point to get your pen out again and write four or five ways that you can become more like Jesus because of your marriage situation now, more so than if you weren't in that marriage situation now. You write those down. Ways you become, you become more like Jesus because of the challenge, because of the private pain. And then you put your pencil down and you start praying again. And you start thanking God. Appreciate's not strong, strong enough of a word. You start thanking God for the ways you can become more like Jesus every day because you're married to the, the spouse you have. Appreciate the elements. I, you suddenly, and the illustration I like to use of this is my dad's death. You know, I'm supposed to be thankful for my dad's death. I'm not called to be thankful for his death in a cold way, but there were some unique opportunities I had in leading my family through that at, at 25 years old that allowed me to grow more like Christ than if I didn't have to go through that. I'm thanking God for those ways that I can become more like Jesus. If you want a different illustration for that one, think of COVID. I preached a sermon several years ago and we were still meeting in the gymnasium and it was called COVID is a good because look what it has brought out of our church family. 
And I listed six or seven things. And we thank God not for COVID. We thank God for the way COVID's going to allow us to grow more like Jesus than if we hadn't gone through COVID. Okay. Third, trials are opportunities. Yes, because trials allow you to grow fruit, to mature fruit. Your verses here, of course, is the classic one on the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Listen to uh, uh, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And I'd just like to remind you that um, not one aspect of that fruit of the Spirit can come to maturity outside of not just trials in general, but trials involving people in particular. Every last one of those. And it sounds like, just maybe, that your, your difficult, challenging marriage is, is rich, dark, and deep soil that will take on the roots well of what you plant there and bear for the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, etc. What else? Take blame. That's just another way of saying confess sin that you're aware of. Don't confess sin that's not yours. But if you have been sinning against your spouse because of their unbelief or disobedience, you need to confess that to the Lord is sin and to them and ask their forgiveness. Psalm 19, 12-14 is a good reminder for that as is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next, claim promises. Claim promises. You say, what do you mean? I'm, I'm thinking here of Romans 15, verse 4, just as a reminder. 15.4 says, whatever was written in earlier times, and Paul's referring to um, Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There are, there are promises, there are general principles in Scripture that require us to open our Word, our copy of Scripture, and look for what does God expect, what does God provide people like me in situations in marriages like this with an unbelieving or disobedient spouse. And we've already explained the Bible has much to say about your situation. Claim those promises in prayer. And then obey commands. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. And so what does the Bible say that I am to do when I'm in a situation like this? You know what this means though. Whenever the word command shows up, and Jerry Bridges is great on his, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, and pointing out this. He says, anytime I see command, I have to have the right motivation for obeying a command. And there's only one right motivation, and that's the fear of the Lord, which brings joy. You know what that means? That means obeying Jesus, even in the most difficult of situations, is an act of worship. And the harder the marriage, the more difficult or intense the burden for your unsaved or disobeying spouse than the greater the expression of love to Jesus. Now, I've just flown through those and I took a lot of time to preach through those. Um, and if you go to the Sermon Audio website and look for the, our, our um, church page on that and look for the series, Christ-like Responsibility, I, I 
I developed those way much more there. So trials are opportunities. God wastes no trial, no testing your life, including being married to an unsaved or disobedient spouse. But I must keep moving. What else do we put on? Choose to saturate your words with grace. Choose to saturate your words with grace in that marriage. Your key verse here, or your text, will be Ephesians 4, 29-32. I'll read it for you. It simply says this. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. That's already weighed down pretty heavy, isn't it? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You say, well, hold on, hold on just a minute. Ephesians chapter 4 is written to the church. It's written to a local church there in Ephesus, there in that city. And I'm married to an unsaved or disobedient spouse who's not in the church with me. Right, but what's going on in Ephesians chapter 4, remember what happened earlier in this chapter, it's you being conformed to the image of Christ. The put-off put in and put on is just a few verses above this seat. You're not to compartmentalize your growth in Christ-likeness to just with other church people. What's true of you with other church people should also be true of you in the privacy of the living room. There's a grace to you. And it's a, it's a grace that even seasons your words and your interactions. Choose to saturate words with grace that means you're going to have to shun some things. A couple of things. Let me just pastorally nudge you here. You need to, first of all, shun complaining. See, what do you mean by complaining? This is someone who operates with this model. They say, I will always focus on what is wrong. What is wrong in their life? They're not believing the right thing. They're not obeying Christ. I'm going to always focus on what's wrong. If my mouth is moving, it's, I'm pointing at something saying what's wrong. You have to shun that. You need to repent of that. That doesn't minister grace. You need to shun, secondly, concluding. Say, what do you mean by that? Just write it down. Shun concluding. And here's what this person says. They, they would say something like this. I will always get the last word. The last, one, the last opinion bouncing off these walls will be mine, or the last, one, the last protest in this text message will be me. You need to shun that. You need to repent of that. That doesn't minister grace. That's a competition. And thirdly, you need to shun correcting. Shun correcting. You say, what do you mean? This is the person that says, I will always state my opinion. I have to. Even if it's not being asked for. Now, some key words here in these statements are always. I will always. It's not saying that you never correct. It's not saying you never have a last word or complain, but if you live for these three things, you need to repent. They don't minister grace as Paul has prescribed. My wife, I was downstairs studying in my office yesterday for today, and I get a text message. Remember how we text when we're eight feet apart, separated by just the floor? I get a text message. I hear her up in the kitchen. I'm like, it's too early to make lunch, and she's still going to make me take our walk today, so I don't know what she's doing up there. 
I get a text message. She says, I got a recipe from Devin. Um, and and it's, it's how to make your own pumpkin spice creamer for your coffee. And, and she says, do you want to try what I did? And I'm like, sure. And so she, whatever she made up there, whatever Devin directed, uh, Lori made that and made me a nice dark coffee and put this pumpkin spi- spice latte in there, homemade, brings it down to my office, sets it down. It's piping hot, of course. And she's just standing there. And I'm looking over the book saying, is there anything else you need? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, she's like, what do you think? You going to try it? I'm like, sure. I, I mean, just give me a second. It's kind of hot. I took a drink, and I didn't say this just to make her feel good. I said, this is amazing. Way better than store-bought. Store-bought tastes like candy. This has a naturalness to it that just makes me feel natural, you know? And she was like, well, I did this, and I put this in, and this kind of... And, and I didn't understand what she was saying, but I know this. She was very conscious of what she had mixed in together with my coffee. And the end result was something I didn't want to stop drinking. You know, Paul's prescribing this with your words. You have to be conscious of not only what you don't put in your communication in your home, but intentionally put in what he says to put in Christ-like character characteristics. And you know what? Maybe just maybe your spouse won't be able to stop drinking that. Sometimes when it comes to our communication, you and I need to stop in the middle of a conversation with our spouse and tell them we'll be right back and we run into the bathroom, say the same thing we just said in the room with them and look in the mirror and look at your face. And listen to your tone when you're by yourself. You know, um, you might have good words you're trying to communicate, but your face is yelling them and your tone is belittling them. Repent. Repent. Because the, go- the gospel grace that's at work in you can change that. What else do you put on? Just two more. Choose to seek wisdom from counselors. I'm going to give you three passages here just to write down, and I'll read them to you. Proverbs 11:14. You know every one of these passages. You've heard sermons on them. Proverbs 11:14, Where there is no guidance, the people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Also jot down Proverbs 15:22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Let me give you just one more. There could be many more, but just one more. Proverbs 24, verse 6. For by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there's victory. So I, I encourage you to obey Scripture and find people and give them permission to speak into your life. Give them permission to ask the hard questions. I was having the joy this morning of discipling a man during Sunday school in my office. And we're going through a book together. And I said to him, I was asking him questions about the chapter we were reading, and I said, hey, man, any question I ask you, I'm expecting you to turn it right back on me, man. I mean, this isn't just me and you going for you. You're, you're supposed to be helping me. Invite counselors in and give them permission to speak the true truth to you. You say, what kind of counselors? I'll make some suggestions. Just four. I, I encourage you to ask pastors. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, we are here um, to equip you for ministry. To move you forward in your understanding of Scripture. Uh, number two, ask other godly spouses. Titus 2, 1 through 6. Younger women, you should be talking to older women. Younger men, if this is your story, you're married to an unbeliever or disobedient wife, 
then you need to go to older men, especially those who um, perhaps have gone through a difficult situation in their own life in marriage. And that's the third one. You have pastors, you have godly spouses, but then similar spouses. 1 Corinthians 10.13, those who have had the same experience. But here's another one, one more I want to nudge you towards as far as counselors, and it's biblical authors. And I'm not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'm talking about people that are gifted by the Holy Spirit to exhort, to take Scripture, interpret Scripture, and God's just given them a wonderful insight of how to recommend implications and applications of Scripture. What does this mean? It's not just to marvel at a doctrine, but to take that doctrine home and give it legs in your marriage. And if you're struggling with, with a, a difficult marriage or a challenging one, it might not be an explosive one, but your heart's burdened because of disobedience or unbelief, I'm going to give you some names just to be familiar with. And, and you don't have to get them all down. They'll be recorded on this. But Martha Peace, Elizabeth Elliot, Barbara and Kent Hughes, Jim Berg, Jerry Bridges, Jay Adams, Lou Priolo, Stuart Scott, Tim Keller, Dave Ramsey, or Dave Ramsey. Yeah, he probably will help with the finance. Dave Harvey, Gary and Betsy Ricucci, um, Kimberly Wagner, who wrote just a powerful book my wife really appreciates called Fierce Woman. Um, Jim and Carolyn Neuheiser write large books and small books, and they're on, a, in a, on the right page when it comes to dealing with domestic Strife. Jim and Carolyn Neuheiser. And I would just commend to you a help booklet series um, put out by Shepherd's Press. They're called Lifeline Mini Books. And there's many in that series that deal with marital challenges, including what we're talking about. They've had one even written on this very topic to wives. That one's, um, the author has moved on and we need that one to be rewritten, but you can probably still find copies of it at some point. Well, our time's gone. We've got one more put on, and this is just to get you started. Choose to follow Scripture regarding confrontation. You say, what do you mean about that? I'm talking that um, if, you, if your spouse is a professing Christian and part of a church, part of your local church, prayerfully consider what Scripture has to say about the proper way and the improper way of confronting. You have some key passages here, Galatians 6.1. If someone's overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, that means you're walking in the Spirit, you go to them in a spirit of meekness, not lecturing, considering yourself that you might not, because you could be tempted. Another passage is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, which I'm preaching on next Sunday morning. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Discern with that verse, as your spouse, your disbelieving or, dis, um, or disobedient spouse, are they merely um, unruly? Are they in rebellion? Are they discouraged? Are they faint-hearted? Or they just don't know what to do next? It's not that they're rebelling. They just don't know what to do next. Are they weak? And then respond accordingly. Now, I want you to notice something on, on these six that I just give to you to get started as far as the put-on. There's more. You read some of these authors, you'll fill pages and screens. And that gives you hope. But I have the word choose there, right, on purpose. Choose means I'm addressing your will. 
kind of. By this point in the series, I hope you understand that your heart takes in information, which we've been doing with Renewing the Mind. It's told us what to repent of. It's told us what to put on. And that has attached itself to our affections. We, we have hope now and we have a plan. It's at that point, Jesus expects us to obey. He expects us to obey. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12-13 through 13 says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's an expectation to obey. But the next verse says, it's God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He is the one who gives you the grace at the level of your wanter all the way to the level of your doer. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12-13. through Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. I'll just read this to you before we close. Hebrews 13, 21. It says, May the God of peace, verse 20, equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Pretty, pretty straightforward. You know, if I came up to you and said, I want you to go out west with me, and we go out west, and I say, that's the Grand Canyon. Do you see it? We're standing on the edge. You would say, yes. I'd say, here's my assignment for you. Get to the other side. Bye. And I walk away, and you're like just left there at the edge, and and you look at the, 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 the amazing chasm in front of you, and I just told you you have to get to that side. You say, well, I, I can't do that. That's impossible. And just then you hear the Chinook helicopter filled with SEAL Team 6 come up over the ridge behind you. And they put that Chinook next to you. They land it right next to you, and they say, get on board with us. You say, why? Because we're going to take it to the other side. You have to get on the helicopter. Let's go. Suddenly, what was impossible is overwhelmingly possible. That's the way it is with God's grace. You must obey, and His grace is operative in your obedience. So yeah, some of you know what it means to have unseen pain. Either being on nerve's end because of a a, a tense home and marriage, because of a disobedient or unsaved spouse, Or it might be a very good home, a very pleasant home, but your heart is burdened because of their eternal crisis. It's an unseen pain. Join the parade of those who not only endured from episode to episode, from day to day, from year to year, unseen pain. Join the parade of those who in their unseen pain found an unseen, grace-filled perseverance because they went in at Scripture And then they looked to the left and they knew what to repent of. They looked to the right and they learned what to put on. They put off and they put on. And there's just something about them that makes them resilient and beautiful. And in some cases, the determining factor in God's hand for the salvation or rescue of their spouse. But not always. But my goodness, they're going to be an encouragement to the parade of ladies coming behind them in the same crisis. Unseen pain, unseen perseverance that can't be missed. Let's stand, please, as we close in a word of prayer. Father, we commit this Lord's Day to You. There's been a lot of singing, a lot of fellowship. There's been discipleship going on. There's been a lot of 
text covered in the Word. It's been two heavy sermons today. But I pray Your Spirit will take the beauty and the urgency of Your truth and help it to walk with us through the rest of today. Keep it in the front of our mind as we as we press through the coming days and the coming weeks. Whether or not we're talking about our homes, we know others whose homes are marked by this, this, this uh, crisis, this urgent problem. And I pray that somehow you'll use us to encourage those. Help us to, to, to lean into the pain they're feeling and be careful and how we introduce the traction that Scripture offers. But help us to do it nonetheless, patiently with an open Scripture, and many meetings over coffee and encouragement. And Lord, I just pray that we'll hear not only of spouses coming back to You, or for the first time in salvation, coming to You for new life. I pray that we'll hear stories of that. And how your sons and daughters who were in those marriages lived out what we read in 1 Corinthians 7. Because they were in the marriage, the truth and the light was in that marriage, affecting their spouse and lighting up every room in that home, affecting the children too. Help us not look for the easy, quick ways out, which many in the broader body of Christ now are running to. Help us to look to you as our example. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.